This morning we want to um, come back to 2 Corinthians, and Paul is now coming back to a topic that he talked about at the beginning of the book. Anyone had any arguments or disagreements with anyone this week? Could I know who? No, no, just kidding. <laughs> no, we, we, we disagree with people. We're people, we have disagreements. How we handle those disagreements is, is huge. And, and Paul, as we know from the history, has had some major issues with the church at Corinth. There's been division, there's been harsh words, there's been um, an unwelcoming spirit to Paul, there's been opposition to Paul in his ministry. We saw Paul, he wrote 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote, he finally visited, and that didn't go well, so he wrote a severe letter, and this severe letter he delivered with, with, with Titus to see how would they respond. And so this relationship has been rocky at its core. And there's been a lot of painful things. And that severe letter had a lot of painful things that Paul told them. But sort of at the beginning here, is pain always bad? No. Can it be bad? Sure. But is it, it, it's not always bad, right? That painful letter from Paul, what is the hope of what that would have accomplished? Reconciliation, right? Repentance. A change. And we know this. A number of you, I, I get to talk with a lot of you. A number of you have been in the hospital or, or had things happen and maybe it's an appendix being taken out or work on a knee or work on a back or something like that. And one of the things that I always ask is, how are you doing? And one of the answers I often get is, it hurts, but not as bad as it used to. And it's getting better. And I have hope that it'll stop hurting someday. Isn't, isn't that why we, we have surgeries a lot of times? I know there's a lot of different reasons. But the hope is to end the pain, but it, it causes pain. With an appendix, something is removed. They take a part of our body out of our body and think it's okay. And it is, because that's, that's infected and it's going to cause problems. And then the healing comes and the pain goes away. Today, we want to look at that process of restoration and reconciliation, the end part of it. On Easter, we talked about reconciled and being reconciled to God in four different steps. And there's always some initial thing that separates two parties. And for us, our sin separated us from God. And then someone has to take the initiative to change that, right? And with our relationship with God, he took that initiative on the cross, paid for that sin, paid the penalty for that sin, But then the third step is there has to be a coming together and a choice to come together. And that choice to come together is not a glib, oh, everything's fine. That choice to come together is dealing with what actually happened and and dealing with the, the pain of what happened. For us, when we choose to come to God, that means repentance. That means coming to Him and saying, I was wrong, you were right. My sin betrayed you. It was rebellious against you. It hurt you. And I'm sorry. And I will change. So we make that choice to come together. And then the fourth step out of that in the, in the process is now there's a relationship that's restored and renewed. Today, as we come back to, to the passage in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's focusing on those last two steps. Earlier in the book, we focused on the, the earlier steps and some of the, the initial separation and some of the things that led to that and Paul's reaching out to them. And now we come back to, to reconciliation and restoration of relationship. And while Paul has a lot of things that should step on our toes today in the passage, it's also a passage of joy because he's portraying what could happen. 
And so today we want to learn from Paul's example. We want to take 2 Corinthians 7, see what Paul said to the Corinthians, see how he handled restoration of relationship, and I bet we'll find all kinds of ways we can apply it to our own relationships and how we should restore relationships, how we should recover from problems. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at the the whole chapter today, verses 2 through 16, but we will still get done by 11. So buckle your seatbelts. We're we're going to get through it. Remember the background here of the last few chapters that we've been talking about. In chapter 6, a a couple weeks ago, Pastor Andrew talked about that Paul said, open your hearts to us. Make room in your hearts for us. Let's renew our relationship. And then last week we talked about being separate from the world. Don't be unequally yoked with the world. Those were the things that were really keeping at this point the Corinthians from, from having a relationship with Paul. They were still in love with the world, still clinging to the world and not to Christ. And so we come now to chapter 7, and, and we're going to explore what has happened. Titus has come back. Paul has caught up to Titus. He's heard some of the progress. And so we want to read and see what some of the principles for opening our hearts to restoration is. See, it's always a challenge after a problem with somebody, after a conflict, after a difficulty, after an argument with our spouse, after maybe something happening with our kids or a coworker. It's always a challenge to take the risk of opening our hearts back up to them. That's hard. Because what might happen? They might hurt me again. They might stomp on my heart again and put it back in so I feel the pain. And we we protect ourselves by not opening our hearts. But that's not what God's Word says we should be about. So let's come to 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 2. We'll read 2 through 4. Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. And and as Happy uh, explained a couple weeks ago, the idea was open up your hearts so we can get in. Make a place for us. For them, that meant eliminating some worldly stuff so that Paul could, could get in there. But it's an idea of openness, transparency, of genuineness. Paul goes on to say, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. What a great way to start coming back to this topic. To to renew the relationship. And we read this, and, and I read this, and I'm expecting all kinds of admonition. I'm expecting all kinds of, you know, hit them in the face. And it's about time you turn your hearts back to us and open our hearts and we need to be, be friends again. But that's not the tone, is it? Did you catch the tone as we read it, especially in verses 3 and 4? I said before, you're in our hearts to die together, to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And so we see Paul, that's going to be one of the themes of this passage. He keeps using the word joy and the joy of reconciliation, the joy of restoration. There's a number of things as we break that down. I had mentioned make room in your hearts for us. Paul's reminding them the restriction at this point is on their side. Paul's open. He's trying. He's ready for this relationship to be restored. And he's asking them to take an action to do something. 
And then in the rest of these verses, he really does three things. And the first thing he does is he corrects their error in an undefensive way. He corrects their error undefensively. And and he addresses some of the accusations that were probably against him. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have not taken where we have taken advantage of no one. And he does it just in a short way. He doesn't get into all the details. He says, I, I, I wasn't, some of the accusations may have been he was there for the money. He's like, I wasn't taking advantage of anyone for the money. I haven't corrupted anyone. We really believed what we said. I haven't wronged anyone. But he just simply, in an undefensive way, corrects the errors. Those have to be addressed for reconciliation to happen. But the beginning of verse 3, he says, I do not say this to condemn you. And the tone is what I want us to see this morning. The tone of what he's saying, he corrects, but not in a condemning way. So many times when we've been hurt, what do we want to do to the person? I'm going to hurt them back. They need to feel the pain. Because when they feel how much I hurt, then they can be really sorry enough. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We don't see that in Scripture. We never see that in Scripture. We see Paul here saying, I'm not trying to condemn you. But I am trying to correct. It's speaking the truth in love instead of to harm. Instead of to hurt. And so Paul corrects those things. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, though. I'm not trying to blast you. I'm not trying to make you pay. See, that's all about self. That's not about reconciliation. That's not about showing God's forgiveness. There's probably an an irony here because these are all the things the false teachers were doing. The people that were accusing Paul of, of doing these things, they were doing all these things. And Paul loves this people. He loves this church. We need to see that tone. In conflict resolution, I've at times seen it get really nasty because we're finally able to share our feelings and dump on the other person. And oh, that doesn't show God's grace. It doesn't show his love. And Paul doesn't do that. I do not say this to condemn you. And then he goes on. The second thing he does, first thing, correct error undefensively. The second thing is he values relationship highly. He values relationship highly. Listen to this. For I said before that you are in my hearts. Our hearts, sorry. And it's a way of saying I love you. I care about you deeply. This isn't just a casual relationship. You're in our hearts to die together and to live together. He says, we're, we're in this. As long as we're here, we're in this together. You know, yesterday, some of you went to Kristen's wedding for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. You're in it together, right? Till death do us part. That's a little bit of what Paul is saying here, to die together and to live together. This was sort of normal phrasing in, in, in Greek times of, of how to express loyalty and mutuality of relationship that would last for the rest of your life. Now, it's interesting because usually it was said to live together and to die together. And Paul, interestingly enough, switches the order to die together and to live together. And we don't know completely why. I think it's a little bit of of referring to the death of Christ, that we've died with Christ that he's already talked about. So we've died to self so we can live with each other, so we can be in relationship. But when we're looking to restore and reconcile, we have to value this relationship highly. 
to be able to say things, you're in my heart. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to die with you. We're going to live life together. I am loyal to you, even when it's hard. Husbands and wives, when we have an argument, when we have a disagreement with our spouse, do they know that we love them, even when it's hard? That even when we disagree, this doesn't change anything in our relationship. It doesn't change the love. And so Paul here is talking about opening his hearts together. Live life together. Make room in your hearts for us. See, if we're to be a people of reconciliation, and keep in mind, this is all after two chapters ago, Paul says, God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. We can't share that with others unless we're getting it right with each other. And so we need to be a people that are willing to open our hearts to each other, to live life together, to be genuine with each other. And and, and village, that means more than just coffee time after service. That means during the week, checking up on each other picking a couple people and seeing how they're doing. It means finding ways to really live life together, to build into each other. You know, maybe today you find out something new about somebody that's sitting in this room that you've never known before. Wouldn't that be sort of fun? Just an assignment at coffee time to say, I'm going to find out something about somebody. Maybe some way I can pray about them. Maybe where they work. Maybe um, what one of their hobbies is. Some way that I can get to know and live life with them better. We open our hearts. Ladies, you have an opportunity to do this this afternoon with showers. Showers are a great way for ladies to come together and in this case, support Kayla. She's about to be married. And it's a way that whether you know her well or not, to get to know her and to come together, to live life together. Don't miss things like that and what God can do things, through things like that. And then we get to the, the, the rest of these verses and what Paul is doing in verse 4. I am acting with great boldness towards you. Confusing words. Some have said confidence. Um, the idea here is really the, the ability to be bold or to be open with you. I'm willing to be frank with you, even on hard things, but I'm willing to open up and share what's really on my heart. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. Paul is saying this about the Corinthians. Catch that? He's saying this about the Corinthians who have as many problems as you and I. And he says, I have pride in you because he's finding the best in them. We make choices in our relationships, don't we? I can choose to to find all your faults. You can choose to find my faults. Is there anyone in here without faults? So this is actually, we have so many faults, that's the easier way to go. But Paul is choosing to this Corinthian church that through First and Second Corinthians, we're like, how can this church even still be here? And he's choosing to see the best in them. Because love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Then he says, I'm filled with comfort. The word for comfort is the same as the word for encouragement. It's the the word that is the root for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the encourager. And he says, I'm encouraged by you. And then he says, in all our affliction, even though things have, have been bad, I am overflowing with joy. Do you see the tone that he's coming to them with to restore? 
Does that, would that motivate you to, to restore and to listen and to renew relationship? Would that motivate you more than you guys are blowing it? I really don't even want to talk to you again until you get it right. Yeah, you see what Paul is doing. And so point number one there, I know some of you are like, you didn't give us point number one. I wanted to give it at the end of this. We open our hearts to restoration when we focus on the best in others rather than what they did wrong. We open our hearts to restoration when we focus on the best in others rather than what they did wrong. When we hope all things, when we believe all things. See, when we confront, even when we have to confront sin in a brother or sister in Christ, we want to make sure we do it with the right attitude. We want to make sure we do it with the right spirit. If you can't see what God is doing in their life, if you can't see the potential of how, the, how they can serve God, and, then don't confront them. Your attitude's not ready. If you can't see how you can love them, don't confront them. Because God has a work to do in your heart first. And we see such a beautiful example by Paul here. He confronts, but he encourages, and he mixes the two. There's just some real practical good advice there too. When we're confronting someone or giving, good, uh, giving a challenging news to somebody or, or, or confronting sin in their lives, make sure we also have some positive. I can see how God uses you. I can see what God um, wants to do with you. And if we just work on this sin, I can see how, how your ministry will, will grow in incredible ways. And you're mixing positive encouragement with the challenge and truthfully confronting sin. See, this, this approach reminds me that we always have a choice when we deal with people. Am I going to choose to see the, the best in them, the good in them, or am I going to choose to focus on their faults and just live there? And that creates bitterness. It creates a wedge in relationship. It creates an impossible situation for restoration because we're so living for self. See, we can't be the body of Christ if we're not reconciling. We can't be the body of Christ if we're holding grudges. We can't be the body of Christ if we're refusing to open up to each other. Ooh, that might step a little more on toes. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ, bought with the price. We are here to be reconciled to one another. The story was told of, of Robert Browning's wife, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And her parents really disapproved. They're both poets. Um, their parents disapproved so strongly of their marriage that they disowned her. So almost weekly, Elizabeth, as a writer, she wrote love letters to her mother and father asking for reconciliation. They never once replied. After 10 years of letter writing, Elizabeth received a huge box in the mail. She opened it. To her dismay and heartbreak, the box contained all of her letters to her parents. Not one had ever been opened. Today, those love letters are among the most beautiful and classic English literature. Had her parents opened and read only a few of them, a reconciliation might have been effected. And I read that story, and it breaks my heart because we do the same thing with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We crucify each other. We, we hold on to grudges. We hold on to things that keep us from seeing the good in each other and from reconciling. 
bottom line, that person sitting next to you is made in the image of God. If they're a brother and sister in Christ, they are a child of God. How are we going to treat them? Paul chose to open his heart to restoration, even though he was the hurt one in major ways. And he still found a way to focus on the best in the church of Corinth rather than the worst. We read on in verses 5 through 7 is the next section there. And point number two is opening our hearts to restoration means allowing God to encourage us through people and progress. Through people and progress. Let's read 5 through 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. We'll stop there for a minute. I know I said through 7. But Paul now is picking up where he left off in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Let me read those to sort of give us how this ties together. In 12 and 13, he said, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And now here in chapter 7, he's picking that back up. And and, and verse 5 is important to see what's going on. So Paul was in Ephesus, but he had sent Titus to Corinth across the bay and and to find with this letter. And Titus hasn't come back. Paul is deeply worried for this church. And so he goes up to Troas on his way to meet Titus and ministry is flourishing there. But he's so deeply grieved for the situation at Corinth that he moves on up around to, to Macedonia hoping to meet Titus there, probably in Philippi. And he says, even as in that process, things were really tough. Things were really difficult. Even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without. There was opposition even in those churches and and opposition to the gospel. Fear within, probably referring to his fear for the church at Corinth. Over and over, we see Paul mention his concern for the churches, his fear for the churches. Even later in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul is struggling. Again, he's opening up to them about his struggles. He's opening his heart and saying, I want relationship with you. I want restoration. And he shares with them, ministry's hard sometimes. I'm struggling. And it is hard sometimes, but it's worth it. Ministry, whether it be a pastor or whether it's ministry at your work or ministry at your home, sometimes we get our hearts trampled on. But Paul continues. It's worth it. Spurgeon often confessed that he struggled, struggled with ministry. And he was transparent about that. He said, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. And we, we have to understand five because six when it says, but God is so powerful when we understand the lows of where Paul was at and where we can get when we are at odds with people and when we feel like no relationships are working. But six has the answer. And so in verse six we read, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted by you. 
as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And there's that joy again. And so Paul is saying, I am encouraged. I finally caught up with Titus. He, and, and I could just imagine Titus coming down the road, walking, and, and, and Paul's there, and he looks at Titus's face, and you can just tell right away if somebody's down or, or full of joy, right? And Titus is coming full of joy with great news of what has happened at Corinth. And I can just picture Paul's spirits going, I just the joy coming out, right? This ordeal, this multi-year ordeal is making progress. The Holy Spirit's working. God is doing something. And so we see here God bringing comfort to Paul in his darkest hours. Interesting to notice, we might say, well, well, Titus finally showed up. Great, that brought comfort. Who did Paul attribute it to? God. A sovereign God. See, God orchestrates people to come into our lives at just the right time. When we need to hear a word, when we need to hear encouragement. And Paul didn't count this as happen chance. Oh, we, we finally met up. He gave credit where credit is due. He says, but God who comforts the downcast. Do you remember in chapter 1, what did, what did Paul call God? The God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Praise God that he understands when we're downcast. And some of you have come even this morning with really heavy hearts. I know that. I've talked with a couple of you already. God is the God of all comfort even now. God is already bringing people around you to encourage you. Isaiah 49.13 says, Sing for joy, O heaven, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. I love reading this because Paul reminds us God doesn't forget. He doesn't overlook us when we're struggling. And so he brought Timothy or Titus at just the right time with just the right words. How did they... And a couple things. He was encouraged at Titus's coming, but he was encouraged by the message. How they treated him. And some of the things, read verse 7 there. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which with, which with, with, with which he was comforted by you. And he's now writing to the Corinthians, praising them and encouraging them for what they've done. He says, you guys took care of them. There was some fear there. They hadn't taken care of Paul the last time he was there. And Titus was Paul's emissary. He drew the short straw to have to go to Corinth and, and, and deliver the severe letter. But he did it as a faithful servant of God. And they received him and they comforted or encouraged him. You see other phrases. It says that, that Titus told Paul of their longing. A longing probably to make things right with Paul. A longing for reconciliation. He's starting to hear their heart. The next one, you're mourning referring to their sorrow over their sin, their sorrow over what had happened, and finally their zeal for him, their enthusiastic concern for Paul. And he's seeing through Titus their heart, and their heart gives him joy. Were they there yet? No. 
Second Corinthians still addresses, and in 8 and 9 coming up, he's going to address some more issues. The, the reconciliation wasn't complete, but what was Paul seeing? Progress. Baby steps. Like in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says we are all transformed degree by degree. Baby steps. Slower than we'd like, but still being changed. And he sees that in them. And so instead of, of coming and condemning them for not being all the way there, he's finding ways to encourage them and saying, I love your heart. I love that you're mourning over sin. I love that you're longing for things to be right. Now let's see what we can do. How can we do that? So opening our hearts to restoration means allowing God to encourage us through people and progress. In our relationships, we have to realize reconciliation is a process and celebrate the steps of that process. Celebrate the progress. Don't get discouraged that that things aren't completely the same as they were immediately. But take steps for progress. Paul goes on and he starts to talk about pain and good pain, or as Charlie Brown or people would say to Charlie Brown, good grief. Third point, honest confrontation of and repentance from sin is key for restoration. Honest confrontation of and repentance from sin is key for restoration. See, Paul didn't just say, oh, everything's okay I'm just going to ignore everything you did. He addressed it in love and they dealt with it. Let's start reading at verse 8. We're going to see Paul was grieved. He was grieved to write the severe letter. He was grieved to hurt them. He was joyful at their repentance. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Do you catch what that's saying? Sort of a a weird wording there. He's saying... I made you grieve with my letter. I hurt you with my painful letter. And I don't regret that. Thanks, thanks, Paul. And then he said, though I did regret it. And the don't is in the present tense. I don't now regret it, but I did. And Paul's human. He's saying, when I first sent it, I thought, man, I don't want to hurt them. I wish I didn't have to write this. It's a lot like dads, moms and dads, when we discipline. Do you take great joy in disciplining your children and causing them pain? I hope not. We can talk later. That's a whole different thing to work out. I know when I discipline my kids, it hurts. I hate doing it. I don't want to spank them. I don't, I don't want to cause that pain. But when I see the results of that, the, the, the repentance, when I see them doing the right thing, I don't regret it. Because moms and dads, we have to discipline. An undisciplined child is a scary thing. Very similar here. Paul has disciplined them. He's hurt them. He knows it. He doesn't regret it, but he did. It hurt him to do it, but he knows that it's worth it. And he says, For I see that the letter grieved you or hurt you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We'll stop there for a moment because Paul here now is contrasting two different kinds of grief, godly grief and worldly grief. See, when someone confronts us with sin, we have a couple options. 
we can either repent and turn to God and use that godly grief, use that hurt as an opportunity to see the depth of our sin and to change, or worldly grief, we could be sorry we were caught. We could regret doing it without repenting from doing it. And worldly grief, if, if we're not changing, if we're just mad that someone caught us, it leads to anger, it leads to bitterness, it leads to death. Death of the soul, death of the heart. You know, examples of this in Scripture. David, King David, Nathan comes to him after Bathsheba, and he is just tore up. Nathan confronts him with the truth. It's you. What does David do? He repents. Sackcloth, ashes. He cries out to God. Read Psalm 51 sometime. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That's written as part of his repentance. If you want to see an example of repentance, go there. Think of Judas. Judas sees that they, they hang Jesus on a tree. He's, he regrets that it happened. What does he go do? He kills himself. No repentance, but regret. Godly grief, worldly grief. And so we have to understand the difference here, and Paul is bringing it up. See, repentance leads to change. It's change of mind, heart, and actions. Catch that? Repentance is change of mind, heart, and actions. Regret is, I wish that didn't happen. And God calls us to repentance. And and when we're reconciling hurt between people, there needs to be repentance. I am sorry that happened. Please forgive me. A change of mind, heart, and action. See, godly sorrow results more in more than just emotions. It results in change of actions. Before we accepted Christ, we came to a point where we were grieved that my sin hurts my Creator. And that grief should turn to repentance to say, I will change. And I will turn to Him. Worldly grief doesn't lead to actions usually. It just spirals down emotionally. Remorse is sometimes a word we use for it. Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer, uses dung as an example of two kinds of grief. Didn't think I'd get to talk about dung in a sermon. But he used one. He said, dung, if used one way, it's unclean. It's disgusting. It's gross, right? But if it's used another way, it's fertilizer that brings much fruit. Now, that's a pretty cool illustration. Godly grief produces fruit, produces repentance. Worldly grief is just gross and disgusting and doesn't lead anywhere. God is seeking true repentance in our hearts with him, with each other. A.W. Tozer in the Divine Divine Conquest put it this way, and Don, you can put this up. A thousand years of remorse over a wrong act would not please God as much as a change of conduct and a reformed life. Make sense? That's what God's looking for. That's also what we're looking for in our horizontal relationships with each other. Interestingly enough, think about this as believers, repentance isn't just what we do when we're saved. Repentance is what we do every day when we sin. It's a way of life. A pilot, when he's, um, he's piloting a plane, and I've heard this, I haven't actually done this, but a, a pilot, they say, is constantly making course corrections as he flies. 
And otherwise, you know, you, you get off just a little bit and you end up in San Francisco instead of L.A. from New York. But he's constantly making those course corrections. Repentance is the same way with us. How am I sinning today? How am I sinning against those around me today? I need to repent of that and seek to be a, a minister of reconciliation. Paul in verse 11 then gives us some of the characteristics, some of the evidences of their repentance. And again, he, he goes back to encouragement. Look at the progress. Look at what God's doing. Let's read verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. A, a desire to do the right thing, an earnestness to do the right thing. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, to make things right doesn't mean they're, they're being defensive to say they never did anything wrong because they're, they're sorrowful over that, but they're trying to make things right now, to purify their name, to, 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 um, to clear themselves. He goes on to indign, indign, indignation. What indignation you have at sin, a disgust of sin, at the false teachers, at what they did to Paul, at what they allowed in immorality in their church. There's an indignation. And he says, what fear? Fear of God, fear of the results of their sin. Fear of Paul in some sense as an emissary of God. In verse 5, what longing for Paul and restoration. He's repeating some of the things from the verses prior. What zeal for Paul and doing the right thing. What punishment Because if you remember when we studied earlier, they took care of some of the sin in their midst. They put the sinner out that was unrepentant until he came back to Christ and brought him back in. At all these points, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And again, not innocent in the sense that they've never done anything wrong, but innocent in the sense that now they've repented and taken care of it and they're pure. And so these eight things are evidences of, re- of repentance to Paul. An earnestness to do the right thing, an eagerness to clear themselves, to, to deal with it, a hatred of sin, a fear of God and what he thinks of the situation, a longing for restoration and relationship, a zeal and excitement to, to, to make things right, a dealing with sin, punishing sin, and being pure before God. Those are great evidences of our repentance to God, to each other? Are we willing to go through some of the good pain, the good grief to repent and turn around? See, the bigger picture here, though, Paul mentions in 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And he's not saying that those others weren't part of it, but he's, he's saying this is the most important thing. A lot like Jesus in there in, when Jesus said, you have to hate your mother and brother and, and family to love me. Jesus was setting an importance of priorities, not saying that we, we literally hate, but compared to our love for God, it's less. Same thing's happening here. Yes, he did write that they took care of sin, and he, he did write that that person should be dealt with, but more importantly in all that, he said, I wrote that, that the earnestness of our relationship, of your love, might be revealed to you inside of God. The bigger picture was restoration. That's why Paul was writing. 
You know, there's a lot written about, okay, what, who was the one that did wrong? What wrong did he do? And who was the run that, one that suffered the wrong? And some think it was in, in 1 Corinthians, the person that was caught in incest. Some people think maybe it was Paul and how he was treated. Although the third person for the, the one who, who um, suffered the wrong probably isn't referring to Paul. The, the point, one of the, the scholars said, maybe Paul left it ambiguous on purpose. Because what happens if he names names and situations here to a letter that's going to circulate among all the local churches? Does that promote restoration? So church B gets it, and it says, I want to thank you for dealing with Pastor Andrew on his sin. I can can use you. You're safe. (laughs) You won't hate me afterwards. What does the other church think? What a jerk. Why is he in leadership there? So, Do you see why Paul maybe didn't name names and didn't bring up the situation? Because that wouldn't have facilitated restoration. That would have facilitated anger and bitterness and, and ostracization. So Paul just says what he needs to. This is about relationship. Therefore, we are comforted. Therefore, we are comforted. And the reason I think he goes to restoration is when we have a spirit of unforgiveness, when we have a bitter spirit, when we are resistant to restoring relationship, especially when someone has asked for forgiveness, that is always a sign of a deeper spiritual issue. It's always a sign that this relationship is broken because we can't get these relationships right. And so Paul's dealing with reconciliation and restoration in a big picture because that is what exposes spiritual issues. You know, sometimes I get asked the question on something like this where Paul is opening his heart and, and they've repented. What if they're not genuine? What if they're just saying they repent to get over this? Shouldn't I withhold restoration then? Jesus answered that. He answered it several times actually because Peter asked things like that. But in Luke 17, verse 3 and 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then then answering the question, Well, what if he's not quite genuine? And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So who knows a person's heart? Is it you? No. No. And when we start to say, what if it isn't genuine? What if they aren't really sorry? Or what I hear sometimes in relationships, what if they're not sorry enough? We now are taking the mantle of God. I am God. I know your heart. I know how to punish you. And that is sin. Jesus says, let me deal with that. If he says, I repent to you, forgive him. Let it go to me. It's not your concern. So repentance is key. Repentance is key to relationships and restoring relationships. But ultimately, that's between the person and God. And I accept and I forgive and I open my heart because God is also my God. And I can trust my God with my heart. Last few verses. Opening our hearts to restoration, point number four. 
means not holding the relationship at arm's length for ourselves or others. It means full restoration. And, and, and part of this, I, I want us to understand that our relationships with each other have ripple effects on everyone else around us, right? If I'm not right with somebody, if, if I'm at odds with somebody, if Don and I are fighting, that affects everyone else around us. It's not isolated to us. Don's throwing things at me. But if I restore, that also affects everyone around us. And so, so let's read this and see how not restoring, holding people at arm's length could hurt, but then to bring them in affects, or affects joy. Verse 13. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus has been brought into the ripples. And, and their attitude towards Titus reflected their reconciliation with Paul. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And catch this in verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Not partial confidence, not, oh, I have hope for the future. I have complete confidence in you. And we see a full restoration. Titus is brought in, and again, Paul goes back to encouragement. The joy of reconciliation says, I am so proud of you for how you treated Titus. His spirit has been refreshed by you. What I told him about you was true. Now, now just a side note, what does that tell you Paul is saying to Titus? How's he talking about the church of Corinth to Titus? Positively, right? And and he's saying, "I, I was hoping it was true. I was hoping you'd follow through. When we have problems in our relationships, how do we talk about the other person? Yeah. Toes hurting a little bit? Mine are. Because we gossip and we speak negatively of them. We try to rally people to our side. Paul, who was justified in his hurt, who saw people in sin, boasted to Titus and said, they're going to take good care of you. They love God. We may be dealing with some things, but they love God. Go and see what God does. And Paul wasn't put to shame. Just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, and we see the ripple effect of not holding relationships at arm's length, bringing others into relationship for ourselves and for others. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, they repented, they did, they did right by God. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. We are going to disagree. We are going to hurt each other at times because we're family. And we are going to restore and reconcile because we repent, we open our hearts to each other, and we see what God has done. The tone of this chapter is a tone of joy. It's a tone of encouragement. 
Next time you're arguing with someone, just try looking at all the good things about them and then telling others about all the good things about them and see what happens. It feeds restoration instead of feeding bitterness. Are we serious about loving God and loving others, especially loving others? What an example Paul has given us for how to do that, how to restore even the most broken of relationships. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I praise you that you are the God of all comfort. You bring comfort. You know when we're downcast. But Lord, because you've reconciled us to yourself, you have given us everything we need to restore relationships with each other. Lord, if we have hurt anyone this morning, if we know that someone has something against us, help us to repent right here, sitting in this seat right now. To say, I'm going to change my heart, I'm going to change my mind, I'm going to change my actions. Lord, if there are broken relationships in this room right now that we're holding out and not restoring, I pray that you would break down those walls right now because those are not from you. Lord, may we be a church that loves each other in more than just name, but in our hearts because our hearts are open to each other. Lord, I thank you for how many friendships I have in this room, for how many times I've been able to be open about my own struggles or my own heart and people haven't trampled them. Lord, I praise you for the the reconciliation that I have seen in this room where we, we have said loving each other and being brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than my own rights. Lord, thank you for this church and the efforts to try to accomplish that. I pray that you would challenge us to keep going forward in that, to not let anything stand in the way of the unity of the saints. In Jesus' name.